Dies ist nicht der große Preis von Deutschland. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is German for this is not the German Grand Prix. I don't know what would have given you that <laughs> idea. Uh, it is not. I'm Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm blue, da-ba-dee-da-ba-da, and ready for the <laughs> Eiffel Grand Prix. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling good. I've mostly been watching this video of this insane carting uh, guy th throwing his front wing at a at a at a at another guy in a car and then his dad fighting a 15 year old it's pretty wild i don't think we're going to talk about it today but let's just stick <laughs> in the show notes anyway so everyone can see how real the world of carting is uh speaking of the realness rob zachney is also here how are you rob uh not bad doing better than that guy who is resigning from the carting world in disgrace uh, after just blindside tackling a dude in uh, the pit lane. It's a mess. Uh, but yeah, don't be like that. Good old racing beef. That guy is 23, and the kid he was beating up was 15. And then his dad bet him up. So they seem like great people. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, you're great people. Welcome. Uh, and if you are new to Formula <laughs> One itself... We have got an episode just for you. Um, it's called The Preseason Primer and assumes no prior F1 knowledge. Explains how the sport works, who everybody is. So if you want to go back and listen to that and uh, get some understanding on what is going on, uh, you can do that. Episode 96 is for you. Also, this show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and uh, sometimes videos exclusively for our patrons covering racing documentaries and films. F1 video games, primers for other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all of that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shift F1 or click the link in the show notes. What's been going on this month, Danny? Uh, we just recently put up a podcast, uh, one of our film review ones on Senna, the uh, tremendous 2010, I want to say, documentary. Um, we had a lot to talk about. It was one of our longest ones in recent memory. And uh, yeah, it's a fantastic movie too. So if you want an excuse to either go back and watch Senna again, or if you've never done it, uh, what what better way to to appreciate it even more by listening to our most recent patron exclusive podcast? One of many. If you sign up today, you get access to the whole shebang. Yeah, I um, was really surprised uh, at the sort of things that came up watching that again and talking with you guys because I think it's the first Formula One documentary I had ever seen. Um, so it's and it's been a while. So looking back on it over over, you know, all this year's the podcast and uh yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, and just um, years and just of analyzing movie. films and racing cuz there's yeah. not all that much race craft documenting in it, you know, especially when you think those people went on to make Drive to Survive. Right. I saw somebody saying on Twitter that there's a 2-hour 40-minute director's cut. Oh my goodness, I'd love to check I, that. I wasn't out. able to verify that, but uh that sounds cool. Uh, if you know yeah. where we can find that, let us know. Um, all right. So today we will be discussing the upcoming Eiffel Grand Prix. Uh, but before that, we've got some news. News. Uh, Rob, do you want to kick it off here uh, with probably the biggest news of uh, of the week? In F1. Yeah. Uh, after... <laughs> A little bit of will they, won't they, and some increasing signs that Honda's commitment was uh, pretty soft to F1 in the future. They announced they are pulling out of the sport. 
they are going to stick through uh, 2021, uh, which is the end of the V6 turbo hybrid era. And then when the new regulations kick in in 2022, uh, Honda will no longer be there. And the justification they gave for this is, in essence, that uh, working on hybrid engines and the type of engines that are uh, you know, going to be powering the 2022 cars is not a research and development priority for Honda at this point. Uh, to quote from Honda's statement, Honda has decided to strive for the realization of carbon neutrality by 2050. This goal will be pursued as part of Honda's environmental initiatives, which is one of the top priorities of Honda as a mobility manufacturer. Toward this end, Honda needs to funnel its corporate resources and research and development into the areas of future power unit and energy technologies, including fuel cell vehicles, uh, battery EV, BEV technologies, which will be the core of carbon-free technologies. Uh, They also ruled out uh, jumping over to Formula E. Uh, however, they didn't rule out taking part in racing in the future. Uh, and so it sounds like they are going to uh, continue to support some forms of motorsport, uh, which possibly includes IndyCar. Um, this isn't an entirely unexpected bombshell, but it does put Red Bull and uh, AlphaTauri in a slightly more awkward position than you might realize. For one thing, obviously, this means they don't have an engine supplier uh, as of this moment. And the reason they were with Honda was because they had a really venomous relationship with Renault by the end of their partnership. Uh, despite the fact that the Renault-Red Bull partnership was incredibly successful and develop- and uh, delivered several uh, world-, world titles to the team... By the time the uh, by the time they ran their course uh, in the turbo hybrid era, things were pretty toxic between Renault and Red Bull. Red Bull was blaming most of their car deficiencies on uh, the lack of power, which was probably a fair statement. Uh, Adrian Newey and uh, the Red Bull team had not gotten that much worse at handling aero, but the cars were just noticeably uh, underpowered. And the relationship between Cyril Abitable and uh, Christian Horner was, you know, pretty obviously tense and toxic, uh, you know, by the time they decided to split. And Honda was sort of a ready partner, uh, wait, like looking for someone else after the partnership with McLaren went really badly. However, with Honda leaving, that means that Red Bull has to look elsewhere, and that probably means they have to look at Renault again. Uh, <laughs> for one thing, the for like teams can only supply uh, I gather they can only supply four engines, um, you know, a piece, and so I believe that Ferrari is at capacity. Um, Mercedes. I think might be able to like supply one more team, but the issue being that, well, Red Bull's two teams and also Red Bull fancies themselves a title rival uh, to Mercedes, uh, which means that the one, the, the one uh, organization manufacturing F1 engines right now that is not full up on clients is Renault who are currently only powering uh, you know, for next year are only powering their own car. So that 
uh, or, or in 2022 are only powering uh, their own car when those regulations kick in. Furthermore, uh, apparently there is a rule in, uh, in Formula One that in the sporting regulations, and this is from an article by Keith Colantino at Race Fans, the power unit man- manufacturer, which has the fewest customers, must be prepared to supply a team which has no engines if called upon to do so. If Red Bull don't have a deal in place by June 1st next year, the FIA could therefore find itself in the extraordinary position of presiding over a shotgun remarriage between Red Bull and Renault. Um, mm. Which seems entirely likely. Now, probably they won't have to do that because it's so clear that this is the end game and Cyril... Uh, said up front that uh, somebody asked him, well, won't it be awkward working with Red Bull again? And Cyril responded, I think so, but we need obviously to look at the sport. And I think we are still very not, we are still very far away from having to possibly cross that bridge. I can't imagine that Red Bull would not have some plan in the background. Clearly they must have been aware of this and Helmet, Marco and Christian are full of moves and solutions. I don't expect that we'll be their plan A. Uh, Probably not, but that, it doesn't look like they really had a plan A that's in, in clear evidence. Um, but they will have a lot of pressure to find one because there is um, there has there has been a rumor in the past that Max Verstappen had as part of his uh, contract with Red Bull a clause that uh, if Red Bull couldn't maintain independent engine supplier, uh, he could perhaps leave the team early. Christian Horner denies this uh, and says that no such clause exists. Probably, okay, sure. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me, given a driver of Max's uh, talent and like how in demand he was, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't something in the contract that, that didn't have something to do with the the capacity of Red Bull to mount a, ta- a title challenge uh, because yeah, one of the he, things he's he specifies it as uh, he says there is definitely no engine related clause in Max's contract but there mm. may be others that say like well if you can't produce a car that gets us in you know consistently the top six or whatever then I'm out of here yeah um, I tend to be of the mind that like widely held rumors in F1 have something behind them. Um, but yeah, we'll, we will see. Obviously though, um, that might, that rumor might just reflect the fact that uh, Max and his people, his, his camp um, aren't really interested in driving for a customer team. Uh, the sort of rule and thumb in F1 is that you're not really compete. You're probably unlikely to compete for championships uh, if you are driving somebody else's hand me down power unit. Um, which is why Honda was kind of an interesting place because with this go round in F1, they didn't have a factory team that they were supporting. So they were pretty much the only game in town. If you were mounting like a third party title challenge uh, with, with, with an, with a third party engine supplier. Uh, so this kind of leaves Red Bull in a very weird place. Um, I see a note here uh, in, you know, in terms of can Red Bull make their own engine? Um, Drew, you want to speak to this point a little bit? Yeah. So this is this is from the hyphen race.com. Um, it says uh, Honda's Formula One project leader, uh, who is, let's see, uh, 
Masashi Yamamoto, uh, Honda F1 Managing Director, uh, says that um, he's willing to discuss Red Bull keeping its engines after its 2021 F1 exit so the team can develop them itself or with a new partner. Asked if there is a limit to how Honda would be willing to help and if it would stop a potential continuation project using Honda's technology, Yamamoto said, if that kind of request is made from the team, I'm ready to speak to Japan. I personally want to support what Red Bull and AlphaTauri do as much as possible. Uh, pair that with something that um, uh, reporter Hazel Southwell said on Twitter recently. Uh, she says, Yonks ago, which I believe is in it's, the past. It's many. Yeah, a long time ago, that means. Um, I got allowed 15 unfettered minutes with the head of powertrain <laughs> at Cosworth who make Aston Martin's high-end engines and hybrid uh, powertrains. Um, and they said unequivocally they weren't going back to F1 while the MGUH was on the table. Uh, Cosworth is a British automotive engineering company that used to make F1 engines. Um, according to Wikipedia, quote, Cosworth has collected 176 wins in Formula One as an engine supplier, ranking third with the most wins behind Ferrari and Mercedes. Yeah, I think that so, mostly would have been with Brabham and Tyrrell, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, you never see those cars over here. Cosworth are like a well-regarded car in the UK that you never see over here. It's interesting. I only see them in the context of Indy, yeah. Right. So the other thing that – it's tough for me to – I can't tell you right now where I've gotten this impression – but from a few things that have been said over the years about when people... The last round of speculation about how deep Red Bull's commitment was to staying in F1, it already mm-hmm. sounded like, while this remains a passion project for uh, Helmut Marco, and he has the pull within Red Bull to continue making this a priority, if you are now self-funding an engine, you're talking about a different level of investment and you're working even farther outside your com- your comfort zone like one of the things that's enabled this entire red bull venture is the fact that they courted adrian newey very aggressively sort of at the founding moment of the team and that really allowed them to short sort of shortcut their way into being aerodynamically competitive they've never mounted a similar eff- effort when it comes to power unit uh issues and as we can see like Ferrari can't get this right. Like, Ferrari are up shit creek when it comes to uh, F1 engines right now. And they're Ferrari. And so I could see the notion of, like, you know, it sort of sounds like what's being floated here is that Honda is maybe open to letting Red Bull acquire their intellectual property for those engines and maybe some of the fab pipeline around it. Um, but I don't know what the what is the actual worth of that in generating competitive engines and I don't know what, impl- like, who are, what's the brain trust that would come with that deal? Yeah. Um, thanks, Rob. I think that's a really great summary of <laughs> kind of every angle of this. Um, I, I'm kind of looking 20 years in the future and, and wondering, like, you know, if Honda's business is moving away from internal combustion, what's to say that the world's engine manufacturers? Uh, particularly the ones in Formula One won't eventually do the same. You know, does does that mean F1 will become all electric? I, I don't see that happening. Um, I think it could become more of like this weird niche, you know, internal combustion powered thing before that happens, which would be like a scale down, right? That would mean it uh, maybe 
would start courting these smaller, you know, bespoke engine manufacturers to, to come in. Um, I think this sort of, I don't see a, another like big engine manufacturer coming in and being the fourth, the fourth one. I think we keep the big ones we got or some smaller players come in and, and the sport kind of changes. I don't know. What, what do you think, Danny? Yeah, it's wild. It, it's, it's making me think very long term. Same as you. It's making me think further down the road than I usually do when it comes to a lot of F1 drama. It's usually drivers changing or even like the engine engines changing we had with, with a, a Red Bull prior going to Honda. You know, you're sort of looking within the next couple of years. Um, I think the, the, there's a couple of things. The first one is Red Bull's future for sure, like Rob was alluding to. It, it makes it a much better, bigger thing. It also like F1 hasn't been the shiny new rock in Red Bull's you know, franchise collection of things that they do in quite a while. So like the marketing push behind F1 Red Bull, I don't know if it has the same bite that it used to in the past, especially now that they've not been competitive for years. And the story that mostly gets associated with Red Bull these days is their total lack of ability to, um, I don't know, find the footing for their upcoming young drivers. You know, Max Verstappen notwithstanding, especially if he leaves, what does Red Bull look like then? It's basically a house of of drivers that get brought up to the big team, fall short and get kicked back down again. You know, it's not a good look. It doesn't look sexy. It doesn't look fun. And Red Bull's F1 team was, you know, it's a passion project, but it's also a massive marketing push. So how does, what does that look like? Um, so that's that's one side of it. The other is this, you know, what does F1 look like, as you said, in 20 years or in 10 years? Um, you know, if, if Honda essentially is, and Honda has always been known as one of these more forward-thinking companies, right? They've always been involved in a lot of very futuristic, you know, whether it's robots walking around and talking to you <laughs> or uh, battery-powered cars. They've always been more forward-thinking than a lot of their contemporaries. Um, maybe they're in a different lane or maybe they're just further up the road than some of those. And if that's the case, then what happens in five years or ten years then when a lot of these other companies realize that, uh, yeah, hybrid engines are kind of... A normal thing now you know most cars have some degree of of like i drive my new wrangler has a uh, a hybrid engine in and it's got a smaller engine um it's it's pretty commonplace we don't balk at them all that much and they battery power cars i don't know i live in the bay area so it's maybe not representative of everywhere but like i see them all the time you know see teslas mm-hmm. everywhere see different types of electrical vehicles all over the place so at what stage does this forward-thinking nature of f1 which was brought in start to look like old thinking and then what's the new type of thing and sorry just to sort of make these two points come together when i think 10 years down the road i think do we end up as a spec series because if you can't get new companies to come in and more and more of them are going to leave at what stage is having two engines just not it it ends up looking like that whole tire kerfuffle we had back you know 20 years ago in f1 where there's a lesser and a more than It, it it's not fractured enough right so then if everyone's looking forward to electric vehicles, and that's that's not Formula One. Formula One is never going to go electric that way. Or if it does, it'll look it'll look so different. That's what Formula E is right now. So then, do you just kind of have it as this throwback, you know, petrol uh, a sport, but you just have one company making them because why else? You know, who else is, would want to be involved at that stage? Do you just relegate it to it being a spec series? And also, does that solve the problem of qualifying? <laughs> right. I mean, Formula One has used hybrid engines for a while now. Um, right. So maybe it's, you know, maybe they just throw out the MGUH, you know, the really complicated heat recovery system that uh, is apparently super expensive to produce. 
um, and uh, it needs, at least initially caused a lot of uh, technical problems and failures in cars. Um, maybe that's enough to you know keep people interested. Maybe it's cheap enough to for somebody new to come in. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to think whether or not Formula E takes some of the heat off of F1 in this respect. Um, but as we're you know probably going to talk about in the next uh, news segment, the you know environmental cost, regardless of whatever sport you are or whatever business you are, or whatever country you are, like environmental awareness is so much more of a prevalent thing these days. Obviously, um, F1 kind of got out ahead of that, but. It's you know it's be very difficult for them to move backwards I think on on EV stuff or on um, on hybrid stuff and um, given the way that you know the audience reacts to anything that looks like uh, environmental um, it has an environmental cost. So I think one element of this is that in some ways what Honda is doing is not just reading the room you know as you alluded to Danny they're, they're forward thinking and right now. Um, Hybrids are where things are obviously going to be at in the very near future. But longer term, even that is probably insufficient for most purposes of reducing emissions from uh, transportation. And so I think there's this this weird thing where, like, in F1 world, obviously the hybrids are still a work in progress. People are having trouble making uh, great, reliable hybrid engines. But from the standpoint of, like, just... Uh, you know, civil motoring, basically just, uh, you know, domestic, uh, driving, it's not really cutting edge anymore. Uh, the hybrids exist. Uh, people are increasingly being forced to buy them. Uh, California banned gas power, uh, internal combustion engine, uh, powered cars by 2035. I would not be surprised if that deadline is moved up. Uh, and I would not be surprised if hybrids themselves get banned, not, too far after that. Um, and so I think Han is looking at this. I, I think we saw something really similar in endurance racing as well, where a lot of these things that are still being, that have been sort of put through their paces and tested extensively in motorsport, um, they've been accepted in general manufacture. They're the standard. They're also no longer high priority R&D items uh, because at this mm. point, it's just a matter of refining what's already out there on cars. And so I think Honda does sort of point to a broader crisis, which is that motorsport has always tried to draft along with the direction the auto industry is headed, but that is, that direction is uh, electric, and which I think is why you see a lot of people, um, a lot of Formula E journalists, I think, do tend to have a view of F1 that they're dinosaurs and the asteroid is headed for them uh, because Formula E is out there sort of entrenching and that is sort of the direction that open wheel racing probably will need to go in eventually. And I don't know how we reconcile that in the future, Uh, but I think it leaves F1 in a really tricky place. And I will, I, I would miss the idea of having some sort of combustion powered engine on some level uh, being out there. I think F1 engines have historically been pretty cool. I'm not yet won over by like Formula E engines. Uh, but I think the, the writing is on the wall. And I think if F1's going to get ahead of this, either we're looking at uh, some sort of transition to electric or something like 
F1 arranges to have a couple legacy engine manufacturers supplying the entire field, or F1 can figure out some other way of nobody has handled the carbon emissions of the freight in their motorsport particularly well. Um, so maybe that's your moonshot is, yeah, we still run gas, but here's the way, here are the ways we've creatively solved the problems of moving all the shit and all these people around the world. I, and I think the, the, what's interesting about this news is that it shows that this is actually maybe out of F1's hands more than we all realized that this is happening because Honda made a decision not because the F1 did. And if more companies or other elements outside of their control, public perception, whatever it is, move further in this direction at a, at a pace that they are not comfortable with, then it's going to knock the train off the tracks before they get to whatever their destination even is. Yeah, I mean, that's why they got to be forward thinking as well, right? And sort of anticipate these moves and what's going to be attractive for, for companies like this. Um, speaking of making moves... We have mentioned in the past that uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix may be moving from uh, Interlagos in Sao Paulo to a track in Rio de Janeiro. There are currently no Formula One circuits in Rio de Janeiro. Um, But nonetheless, uh, Motorsport Brazil has obtained a September 14th letter to the governor of Rio de Janeiro, Uh, Claudio Castro from Formula One CEO Chase Carey, which says, I'm writing to update you that we have now finalized race agreements with Rio Motorsports LLC to host, stage, and promote Formula One events in Rio de Janeiro. These agreements are ready for execution and announcement by Formula One as soon as all necessary licenses have been issued by the relevant authorities. So this seems like it's pretty close to happening. Um, One of those authorities is the state environmental institute which has yet to complete an environmental impact study uh which is relevant because the proposed location for the racetrack is the uh cambota forest which motorsport brazil says is quote considered the last place of atlantic forest in flat areas in the city and contains more than 200,000 trees in an area equivalent to 120 soccer fields Rio Motorsports intends to compensate the environmental impact caused by the construction of the track with a series of actions, such as the replanting of 700,000 trees, the reuse of water, and carbon neutralization policies. Uh, This hasn't sat well with some folks. Um, One Twitter user, at Rosberg Opressau, implored Lewis Hamilton, quote, please don't let the Kambotov forest be deforested to make a racetrack. Interlagos is already a wonderful track and deserves to stay on the calendar. Uh, another user at BRGMSCH points out that replanting trees doesn't do anything for the animals that are there. Uh, and that the 24 million trees Brazil's government promised to plant after the 2016 Rio Olympics were never planted. So... And we're probably um, cut down, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah or burned as uh, burned willingly by by, yeah, or not, yeah. I don't know. So Rio Motorsports, uh, by the way, <laughs> owns MotoGP broadcast rights in Brazil, and recently failed to pay Dorna, which owns MotoGP, causing Disney, owner of Fox Sports, to step in and pay so the races could actually be seen in Brazil. Um, wow. So they seem legit. Uh, yeah. Also, 
I have my doubts that these authorities will fail to give the okay because as this article on um, uh, Motorsport Brazil points out, Brazil's president, um, Jair Bolsonaro, while from Sao Paulo, uh, where the race is currently held, um, quote, made his political career in Rio. And one of his sons, Flavio Bolsonaro, is senator for the state of Rio. Uh, Another heir uh, to Jair, Carlos Bolsonaro, is an alderman in the capital. Uh, give it, give it, two, also, give it three or four years. Yeah, it'll all be fucking out of there. The article also states that Interlagos is one of the two F1 events, uh, quote, next to Monaco, which do not pay a fee for the category to host a race. Um, Sao Paulo, where Interlagos is, was nevertheless trying to win the Brazilian GP contract with F1, but was apparently offering $20 million USD, uh, while Rio is offering $65 million. Um, Wonder why. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, as we know from the German Grand Prix, if you have two circuits vying for competition over your race, you're probably going to bankrupt them both. <laughs> That's I just, right. You know, it, it feels like, okay, the politics are aligned to make sure this, this effort happens. Uh, but I could actually see this. This is an exquisitely ill-timed uh, venture. As they're pointing out, like, this is a small forest. But the symbolism is important. Uh, that report just came yep. out this week that the Brazilian rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, is on track to convert from rainforest into savanna. Uh, due to climate change and due to deforestation, and that is that is a global uh, health crisis. That is a global environmental crisis. Um, and so, to be out there saying that we're going to see this little patch of trees here uh, by our capital, we're going to cut it down. But don't worry, we're going to create some new growth forest that we will that will definitely not burn down in the coming wildfires. Uh, and that's going to compensate for uh, that. That's going to compensate for the loss of this forest. Uh, yeah. So it's I could see this getting enough negative press attention uh, to to derail the thing uh, because Interlagos is a beloved circuit, and mm-hmm. this is just not the time, gentlemen, to be. <laughs> To be uh, clear cutting rainforest to to put in a racing track. Yeah, for a difference of forty five million dollars, <sighs> it sucks. Yeah. Um, you know it doesn't suck. The Nurburgring, doesn't this? Which is where we're going, Danny. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's just my segue. It's up to I'm me waiting for now. you to tell me. I got judge, jury, and executioner over here. God, the Nurburgring is such a. It's such a weird. It's 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 two things. It is number one. If you were to get me to like tell you which is like the I don't know what we call it. Like the average, the like median, the most Grand Prix circuit. Every circuit we go to has its own unique thing, right? And they're all vibing off of this sort of. Um, amorphous idea of what an F1 track is. If you were to ask me to name an F1 track that is as close to that as any on the current calendar, on the current calendar, I would say the Nurburgring. It is it is a big stands. It's a long track. You spend a lot of time in the mid gears. It's not the fastest track. It's not the slowest track. It doesn't have a lot of the the like overly Herman Tilke 90 degree turn stuff going on, but it also doesn't have like 
anything sexy like spa in it. It's got two DRS zones. <laughs> Nobody goes to it because the tickets are really expensive and it's outside of, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's it's a weird track. And I think the reason why people, there's so much love for the Nürburgring has a lot to do with the Nordschleife and what this track used to be. And also what this track is in the modern day when it comes to weekend racers and, and people going up and having, having a go there. So, um... The track is, it's, uh, it was built in 1927, and it's the original version of this. A, long, a large part of this is something called the, the Nordschleife. Um, uh, Jackie Stewart used to call it the Green Hell, which is essentially this incredibly long, you know, almost like original spa um, trek through the forest. Lots of insanely long straights, lots of uh, weird banking corners and stuff. And all of this stuff is used... Uh, in in other racing, uh, the VLN uh, stuff, which is their sort of in-house endurance racing, um, lots of other stuff, and also the uh, just like weekend drivers, you can turn up there if you've got a valid driver's license. You have to sign off a bunch of paperwork that says if you hit any of the barriers, you owe them a shed load of cash, uh, and you can go and drive on the Nordschleife. Then you can go on YouTube and watch crash compilations of people ruining their their uh, their commuter cars on this thing. Um, but this used to be where they used to drive on a big part of this track. Um, it was super dangerous during all those, you know, the 70s when they were looking at all these dangerous tracks. This was probably um, uh, number one on the list. And then when Nicky Lauda had his tragic crash in 76, that basically sort of put the, the death knell on it. Um, it was rebuilt in 84 into the current circuit that we have. But even this circuit has had a sort of a hot and cold history when it comes to F1. Um, they held it in 84 and 85. Um, then it fell off the calendar until 1995. And what's weird is it, between then and 2013, it kind of popped in and out. Um, in 2007, uh, the FA uh, brought this new ruling in that made Hockenheimring and Nürburgring basically alternate the German Grand Prix. Um, Hockenheimring owns the rights to the name German Grand Prix, which is why this one's called the Eiffel Grand Prix. Um and so it was, for one stage, it was called the European Grand Prix. It was called the Luxembourg Grand Prix one year. Um, some years they went back and forth between the two of them. A couple of times they had both at one stage. I think that might have been earlier. Um, and so it's kind of always had this like weird little problem of never being like a stalwart of the season in the, in the modern era. And in the recent years, they've also added, well, in recent years, given the history of it, like in the past, you know, like 15, 20, 20, 10 years, they've tried to add a bunch of stuff to it. I've actually been to the um, Nürburgring for Rock Am Ring, which is one of the big metal festivals that happens in Germany. Um, they added a bunch of stuff. They added that weird roller coaster. Uh, they added a shopping center to it. All this stuff to get people to turn up here. And you have to understand, this is this is not close to anywhere. It's a, it's somewhere south of Cologne, but it's not. It's up in the the you know the the German hinterland. It's not. It's not somewhere you'd uh, you'd go on a on a you know Thursday afternoon if you're bored. So it's near the Eiffel low mountain range in western Germany and eastern Belgium. Right, which nobody's heard of unless they're <laughs> from that part of the the world. You know, until you know three weeks ago or whatever when they started talking about this. So it's so it's a weird track. The track itself, a lot of like turns taken in fourth gear, some flat out stuff. It's got two DRS straights. I like it because we te- we it's a, the type of track that I've never gotten bored of because I don't think I've had the opportunity to because it it kind of appears and disappears. It's like Turkey or something. You know, it's like it's like one of these tracks. You're like, oh, we're back here again. Like I don't remember the racing here being particularly exciting, but at least it's you know I have fond memories. Um, there's a second DRS straight on the back. 
there's some interesting overtaking into that sort of like penultimate little chicane or turn 13, 14. Uh, turn one is interesting because it kind of goes downhill and I've got a corkscrew before before you turn right. But it's not the most, you know, there's like two or three places where overtakes happen here. Turn seven as well um, on the sort of the loop. But uh, it's it's not one where I can point at a specific spot and say, this is where the good racing happens. Um, it's a racy track. It's fast enough. It's not crazy fast. But uh, hopefully these cars can can make a show of it. Um, we'll have to see. You know, safety cars have given us a lot of fun the past couple of races. Maybe we'll get some more of that. But yeah, I wish I could I wish I wish could talk more lovingly about the Nürburgring. Uh, I've been there. I like it. Uh, I know the Nordschleife is a massive part of racing history and a really cool place in the modern day to, to get your tires wet. But um, yeah, it's just not that exciting a track but i'm glad we get to go back again it's been a while well um new well not a new track but a uh uh new name ish new name certainly um and some temperatures we haven't seen for a while is it cold Uh, yeah (laughs) it's chilly it is a brisk uh 48 degrees fahrenheit or a nine Celsius on yeah. qualifying day, and even colder, eight Celsius, uh, forty-six degrees on race day. Um, at least there are looks like some light, well, ten mile an hour winds uh, out of the west on uh, or sixteen kilometers an hour, and that falls to ten kilometers an hour uh, or six miles an hour on on race day. Should help uh, teams like McLaren who seem, pers- you know. Uh, affected, let's say, by the wind uh, this year. Rain, however, 25% qualifying day, mm. rising to 40% on race day. Very That's interesting. Exciting. So the, the I did look up just now when the German Grand Prix is usually on. It's at the end of July. So, you know, yeah, like start of October, this is the German mountains, it's not exactly like, I wonder if this is about as late as you could do this one. Um, Cause it, it's yeah. not like it's, I think Hockenheim ring is in a more, uh, you know, I don't think it's that high. I'm trying to look up the, the, the actual altitude of the Nürburgring here. I'm having a bit of trouble. Um, but I imagine it doesn't suffer so badly from that. But like, is the reason why we don't have places like, I bet the, I bet the Ostrich ring is like <laughs> blanketed in the snow for like four months of the year or something. Right. Cause we're getting into that part of a, uh, into that, that part of the year. I'm trying to look up the difference in altitude. Oh, it's not that high, actually. The highest point is 620 meters above sea level. So it's not, uh, it's not I, so bad. I would also assume that um, with cold tires, you'd want stickier tires or softer tires. Um, mm. You know, to give you yeah, some more, heat some more grip. Much. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah. Uh, that's not what or, they're getting. Okay. They're getting the, the middle three. So the C2, C3, and C4. That's interesting. I wonder, because with rain, the big problem we see is the difference in track temperature off the line. Like it's obviously the, the, the there's lots of reasons why the rubber and the, the wet and everything, but also you have such a massive change in temperature. I wonder if you're, if you're driving in the cold, is that also a danger? If you go off the racing line, then you, there's just not enough there between the, the hot tires and the the cold ground. I have no idea. I, I kind of I'm trying to think what the what's the coldest track. We never talk about cold when it comes to F1 tracks or weather. I remember there was 
maybe we mentioned this recently. I feel like we did, but th- there was uh, snow on the ground in uh, testing in February once in Spain. Oh, really? Yeah. A few years ago, Gosh. I think. Um, but yeah, going into the Eiffel Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton is on top of the Drivers' Championship handily with 205 points. Valtteri Bottas with 161. Max Verstappen in third with 128. And then this close, close battle, starting in fourth place, Lando Norris with 65. Alex Albon with 64. Danny Rick with 63. Leclerc and Stroll are tied with 57. Perez has 56. Then we jump a little bit down to Pierre Gasly in 10th with 45. Sainz has 41. Ocon's got 36. And then another gap down to Vettel in 13th place with 17. Kvyat's got 14. Hulkenberg holding strong in 15th place still with six points. Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi, his teammate, have two points. Kevin Magnussen has one. And then we've got Nicholas Latifi, George Russell, and Roman Grosjean with zero midfield heating up uh mercedes is on top of the constructors championship of course with 366 points red bull uh uh, has 192 mclaren is in third with 106 racing point right behind with 104 renault also close in fifth place with 99 ferrari has 74 alpha tauri with 59 alfa romeo has four gene haas and team with their one point and williams still with zero if you want to get in on the fantasy action we have a uh a fantasy league um which you can join using the link in the show notes uh at saddle squares on twitter aka smoking in the peloton uh <laughs> messaged us and said hey what do you think about doing the fantasy top three for the race week and then go into the season's top three as someone who joined late and placed this week I think it may be neat. I think that's a great idea. I, I, I think we used to we do, do that. We used to do I've that. just been yeah. forgetting. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think we used to do that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, the top three scorers from the Russian Grand Prix last week were number three, Lauda Then Life, num- uh, from uh, Kenya. Uh, number nice. two, Black Jumpers, So Hot Right Now, from the USA. <laughs> and number one, Formula Win. Very apt name yeah. from the United States states and then uh overall uh, again we have uh black lives matter from the u.s my heart will grow jean from canada and they're again louder than life from kenya with a total of 2059 points it's a lot of points speaking of the internet danny f1 podcast at gmail.com hit it up Send us your emails, f1.cool slash emails. A lot of emails about reverse grids this week. Um, but we did one of those whole things about a couple of weeks back, two or th- maybe three or four weeks back. So I was pulled back on that. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit on the Red Bull engine stuff. But first of all, this email that came in from Aaron, um, we have been talking about Ayrton Senna earlier uh, in the week with our our patron exclusive podcast. And obviously, we talked about it at the top of the show. He reminded me of perhaps one of the most well talked about uh Ayrton Senna anecdotes but it was uh it was fun so I said I'd mention it again this one from Aaron I enjoyed your chat about driver's excuses so I thought I'd share my favorite it's about Ayrton Senna apparently uh, Senna once crashed out of a race after clipping a wall and when he got back to the garage he was adamant about the reason the wall moved obviously this was totally ridiculous but after the race somebody from the team decided to humor him and go check it out it turns out yes the wall had moved Uh, It seems it was a sort of jersey barrier along one of the turns and he was driving on the very edge 
of the limit every lap, but somebody else had a different segment of the wall, or sorry, hit a different segment of the wall, with the result being that this particular piece of barrier actually had moved a few millimeters. That was enough. That's how close to the edge Ayrton was driving. Yes, that was from the, I believe, 1984 US Grand Prix in Dallas. Um, that famous anecdote. The wall moved. That's crazy. <laughs> That's the uh, I don't F1 equivalent that. of the dog ate my dinner or dog ate my homework or something. The wall moved. Yeah, but he was right. And he was right. It's like the wall of champions moved. It's like imagine if Grosjean hit the wall of champions and it just like popped out a little bit more. It's interesting. I wonder if, the, I wonder if this is the type of thing that would have been caught, right? Because these days, even if a wall gets hit, you know, they tend to... We've had, we have red flags over walls getting hit. You, so they put them back together again. Um, you'd wonder. I mean, most most circuits, though, I guess with the exception of places like uh, Baku and Sochi and um, maybe not Sochi, but like uh, city circuits, Monaco, uh, the the actual barriers are usually far from the racetrack. Mm. So you're not like, you know, uh, cutting the corner and have millimeters to spare. There is some really great shots of, I forget which turn it is in Monaco, but they're always looking head on of the car when they're coming around that really quick chicane. Um, I think Signs broke a wheel there, or Verstappen, I think, broke a wheel there. Uh, suspension in the drive to swimming survive. pool i think is it the yeah you know. yeah it's down there where it gets gets close to the water um yeah yeah totally i, uh, I could see yeah, a millimeter there would that would do it <laughs> yeah in the wrong place um uh rob do you want to read this one from uh from josh it might provide some fun fun mad bants yeah, Josh writes, with the news that Honda is pulling out of F1, all our eyes are on what Red Bull will do for an engine supplier. If Red Bull do get stuck with Renault again, what's stopping Renault giving them a completely garbage engine out of spite? How competitive do customer teams' parts have to be? Is there an actual rule on this? Uh, so I think this is one of those things where I feel like this has actually changed. It's been a while since... Um, I feel like when I first started getting into F1... I want to say that some customer teams were using like previous year's engines uh, from the leading teams. I, I might be completely making that up, but like there was never an, there was never a feeling uh, in like the '90s that customer teams were getting the real engine that teams were using for their for their championship efforts. However, uh, this is a very different era. And because customer teams are now so much of the F1 grid and so much of F1 rules and regulations are about trying to create a competitive sport where you have 20 viable cars on the grid as opposed to just like four or six, uh, there are now rules that say that uh, customer teams have to have parity with the uh, factory teams that built the engines. There are some weasel words around this, like they have to have mm -hmm. access to the same software and power unit modes as works engines uh, with no limitations. They have to receive the same fuel and oil specs as works teams. Uh, so th there's there's a lot of specificity around what that parity has to look like and the things you can't do. On the other hand... Um, for a number of reasons, there's reason to suspect that the parody is more theoretical than practical. Um, mm. Everyone talks about the Mercedes pa uh, party mode that nobody who seems to be running Mercedes seems to have but Mercedes. 
you know that seems to be that seems to be one clear area where there's something Mercedes can do at will that even their customer teams really really can't. Um, but even there, you're not talking about giving somebody a garbage engine. If you if you look like the Mercedes engines are are pretty strong. Um, it's the sort of fire you probably don't want to play with. Uh, if you think about it as well, when Renault engines were at their worst, it was pretty devastating to have Renault badged cars falling out of races all the time or catching fire. Um, a bad F1 engine program is an embarrassment and is probably far more destructive than having even a marginally more successful works team, uh, like benefiting from the bad engines you've sent out there. So I think everyone would have every incentive to play that completely straight. That being said, I, I do think, you know, there's a degree of willingness to collaborate that exists in these sort of like cross organization engineering collaborations that has to exist for the thing to be successful. And I'm not sure that would exist in the Red Bull Renault uh, model. And that's one of those things that, like, regulations don't cover that. That that feeling of uh, willingness to pick up the phone and, like, troubleshoot someone's weird engine. Or, like, uh, spitball ideas to how to get performance better on their platform. Like, the Renault-Red Bull partnership, if it were to come back, I could easily see... Uh, you know, Renault takes the I'm just giving you this engine so I don't get fined approach and they box those engines up, send them over, and that's the last they touch them. And if that's the relationship, that can be bad news for whoever's running those engines because stuff always comes up. Yeah, I could see Red Renault like being not exactly quick to reply to emails <laughs> with questions <laughs> yeah. about engines. That's the thing, right? It's in, It's in those moments that you can't, constitute for you know it's it's the the passion to to put in that extra bit of work so that you're you know honda see look at it with honda and red bull like look how much those wins meant to honda um the 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 strife that they went through um at the mclaren you know in all those documentaries like there's a lot you can see when someone's you know putting in what they need to do and then the folks who are working that extra hard because they've got got a stake in it um it's interesting. Um, I, I did a little bit of a look just to see what the deal was with the Alpine stuff, whether or not this would affect us. Or, or, so apparently, maybe you guys already knew this, but the, so the Alpine is the name of the Renault F1 team going forward from 2021, but they will still be provided a Renault engine and are the Renault Works team. So it'll, if nothing else, it'll clarify the confusion over the Renault team and the Renault engine, which... Um, Looks like it's going to be a thing again if Red Bull can't make their own. Surely they just take the Honda one. I've seen their cartoons. You take the, the Honda engine and you just pour some Red Bull into it until it gets wings and then <laughs> off we go. Well, thank you everyone for the emails. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at ShiftF1 Podcast. I am at Drew Scanlon. That is at Danny O'Dwyer and at Rob Zachney. That is us around the internet. Should we take it around the Let's world? Race around the world. Oh, yeah. The World Rally Championship is in Algaro for uh, the Rally Italia Sardegna. Sardinia? 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 Sardinia. Sardinia. Sure. 
Uh, Juju Noda and Danish Formula 4 are at Padborg Park for the finale. Uh, DTM, Zabak. Padborg uh, is my circuit. favorite time. <laughs> That's been assimilated. <laughs> Sorry. You can only get it in, uh, in Denmark. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zol- Zolder. That's where DTM is. The IMSA WeatherTech Championship is at the Charlotte Motor Speedway for the Charlotte Roval. 100 Ooh. minutes roval oh yeah and it's we're not done at the reverse roval. is that reverse uh, oval <laughs> no the road and oval not Ro- oh it's, sorry it's, of course roval yes yes it's roval o- ovals are the same going coming and going um <laughs> the darren roval the Xfinity series. memorial racing ring <laughs> Uh, the Xfinity Series is uh, also at the Charlotte uh, uh, Motor Speedway for the Drive for the Cure 250 presented by Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. Drive to the Cure. Okay. Drive for the Cure. For the Cure. Uh, the World Superbike Championship is at uh, where? What country is this? Uh, oh, Argentina. Okay. Uh, for the San Juan races. Um, MotoGP is, uh, the Grand Prix de France is this week. Manicure? Uh, the Motocross. Uh, no, it's at Autodromo Bugatti. Oh, of course. Very French. Um, the Moto, uh, Cross Grand Prix is in Spain. The World Rally Cross Championship is in Portugal. And we got NASCAR. Oh, my. We're also at Charlotte Motor Speedway for the Bank of America Roval 400. They got a road course there, apparently. And an oval. And an oval. A reverse oval, if you don't know. <laughs> uh, Formula One kicking off this weekend. Friday, October 9th at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. Mm. Free practice one, followed by free practice two at 9 a.m. Following day, Saturday, October 10th, free practice three is at 6 a.m. Qualifying is at 9 a.m. And the race, everyone, the Eiffel Grand Prix, Sunday, October 11th at 8.10 a.m. All of these on ESPN2, The Deuce. Wonderful. That's doable. 8 a.m. I can deal with that. Yeah. Was that, was that Eastern? Final thoughts, Danny? It's <laughs> uh, Eastern. Excited to, uh, I don't know, be back racing. I feel like the 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 weekends off. I don't like them anymore. I have like we had weeks of the weekend off. We had months <laughs> of the weekend off. I want I want the races back. Um, we do have a little bit of a, a gap again between this and another new one, the Algarve Grand Prix. Um, ah. And then uh, I think we have another gap between... Oh, no. Then we're straight into the uh, Emilia Romagna Grand Prix. Is that what it's called? Yeah, um, apparently. Yeah, in, uh, in Autodrama Enzo, Enzo Ferrari. And then Turkey. So we're kind of entering this weird, like, alternative universe Grand Prix world where the next five races are in, like, just places we've never been before. Or, well, or then, four, it's, four then it's races. Bahrain and then... And then the the outer circuit of Bahrain. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, which is going to be the, weird. 
Sakir and then Abu Dhabi. So it's weird. I'm going to miss a lot of the, I'm going to miss, you know, we're talking a lot about Brazil today. We're not obviously not going there this year. We're not going to Mexico. We're not going to um, Austin. There's, there's, it's just, the rest of the season from here on with the, the change, you know, Abu Dhabi maybe being the, because even Bahrain's usually at the other end of the season, right? Bahrain's usually the second race of the year. So yeah. it's, um, it's topsy-turvy land from here on. And I'm excited for the Hockenheim ring because... It just seems weird that we're racing there Never again been. and now. Sorry, no, exactly. That's exactly, exactly. <laughs> Topsy turvy. Uh, final thoughts, Rob. Oh, just uh, enjoying this European tour uh, season of F1. I, I love love to have a uh, world European racing circuit champion uh, crowned at the end of the 2020 season. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes, you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Vroom.